everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be discussing David Fincher's The Killer and Karen Kusama's The Invitation. Warning, spoilers ahead. Hi, Kat. Hi, Remy. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm good. We're recording on Sunday again, which is lovely. I've had a very eventful weekend. What did you get up to? Um, I had a pretty good movie weekend. Yeah. So let's see. We're at the end of October now. And we had what I fear is one of our last really good Saturdays in terms of weather. Mm. Um, now that you're nearby over here, I'm sure you experienced the same thing where Saturday was crazy warm. It mm-hmm. was almost 80 degrees and everyone in the whole city was in Central Park because we were all just like, this is our <laughs> last chance to see the sun. This is our last chance to feel free. Mm-hmm. And I was walking through Central Park to go see the killer and Will was walking with me. He went as well. And there were so many people out in the like open spaces that I turned to him and I was like, is there like a music festival today? (laughs) And it was simply people just wanting that last, (laughs) that last grasp of warm weather. Yeah. But yeah, I went to the killer yesterday and I went to Priscilla today. So it was a really great double feature weekend for me. Yeah. That's awesome. What'd you get up to? So yesterday, when it was really warm and nice, we went to an apple orchard about 40 minutes away. It's by like Princeton. Mm -hmm. And we had a really nice morning picking apples. We got some apple cider donuts and I got a bottle of wine because they're a winery as well. Cool. Um, and that was really good. It was a little bit sweeter than I would normally go for, but it was more of like on the Riesling end of mm. sweet wines. So it was really good. And then we started a new video game. We started Alien Isolation, which mm. is really good so far. Um, it's, I, I don't know. It depends what happens with the plot, but I could see myself talking about it on the pod eventually because it's, just such a well-designed game. Um, And then today we went and saw Jurassic Park in concert. So Mm -hmm. it was a screening of the movie, but they'd removed the score. Mm -hmm. And so the movie was playing up on the projector. And then there was a symphony. The New Jersey symphony was sitting in front of the projector or not in front of the projector in front of the screen. (laughs) Uh-huh. And <laughs> we just see the shadows. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they played the score, which was just incredible. Um, it was such a fun film experience. I wasn't really sure if I was going to like it as much. Um, mm-hmm. But also just the crowd was amazing. Like everyone was so engaged with the movie and it seemed like a lot of people either hadn't seen it in a really long time or some mm-hmm. like of the younger people there might, it might've been their first time watching it. And yeah. so like there were moments where people would like gasp and laugh at jokes that I've heard a million times because I've watched this movie all the time. 
And mm-hmm. so it was just like really lovely to re-experience it with people who were less familiar with the film. So yeah. it was just absolutely lovely. I would absolutely do those kinds of showings again. Uh-huh. Yeah, sometimes there's just an extra layer of enjoyment mm-hmm. when you are watching other people respond to things, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. Uh, yeah. There's something about <laughs> hearing people make noises of agreement with what you're feeling yeah. or just like hearing people really enjoying themselves. I had a, an experience like that that I'll tell you about for my topic, but... um. Yeah, it's, I'm having a good time in uh, live crowds recently. Yeah, and that one especially was really nice because it felt like everyone really wanted to be there. It wasn't like a $5 screening of Jurassic Park where people are just looking for something to do Mm -hmm. with their kids that weekend. So it just, it really felt like everyone wanted to be there and like people were dressed up as like Sam Neill's character. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. One guy was dressed as John John Hammond and he had like the amber cane when oh, he walks around. Wow. It was it was really fun. Um but then there were just people in normie clothes too. Sure. It wasn't yeah. like everyone was there to have that kind of a time. But that's so fun. It was oh, just such that. a good time. I was like on Cloud Nine afterwards. It was yeah. super fun. I think it would be fun if well, I think it's really fun when people dress up for movies, and I know that's really common for going to see, you know, not cult classic films, but films that have a huge following, uh-huh. I guess. You know, like The Big Lebowski, everyone can dress up as the dude. Yeah. Stuff like that I know is really common. Rocky Horror. Or like Rocky Horror, uh-huh. yeah, that's the perfect example. But I also think it would be really fun if... For example, everyone that dressed up for Barbie, if we carried that over into other films that are new films, I think that would be excellent. I was considering dressing in, like, cocktail attire for Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh my gosh, (laughs) that would have been so cool. Saturday morning, and I was like, I'm just going to look like a psycho if I do this. No, I think everyone should do fun things like that. About making it a really big event, Mm -hmm. especially if it's, like, you know just honoring Marty or honoring whoever you're excited to see. And it feels more special too. Like Mm -hmm. it just, it makes it more enjoyable. I don't know. Yeah. I know. I got to think of how to incorporate that into other viewing experiences coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would like to take a moment to pat myself on the back. I've watched 10 films in the last two weeks. I think I said, Mm -hmm. and I am just very proud of myself. I've talked about this on the pod in the past, how I like am in a constant battle to watch new movies or just movies in general, because there's just like some mental block I have where I find like choosing a movie very overwhelming and I Mm -hmm. find them a little bit more like emotionally intense. And so I've been trying to limit my list of movies that I'd like to watch to only 10 slots. And that has like increased exponentially the movies Mm -hmm. that I actually get to in a given week. And so I just, if you also struggle with figuring out what you'd like to watch, I would just limit yourself to 10 slots on your watch list and don't like spend a bunch of time doom scrolling through Netflix and just choose (laughs) from that. It helps a lot. (laughs) 
Um, that's awesome advice. I'm proud of you too. You're doing amazing. This has to be an all time record. For it you. is. Yeah. I've never watched so many movies and mm-hmm. it's just like way easier now. So yeah. And that makes total sense knowing you and your distaste for decisions. <laughs> I love it when we're hanging out and you just are like point blank. Like I cannot decide, just decide for me. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, that's, I'm glad we're all clear here. This is great. That's how I want people to show me love. That's mm-hmm. like how I prefer love be shown is just like a day of no decisions is perfect mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. I like um, an approach that we've instituted the past couple of times mm-hmm. we've hung out in that when we have to make a decision on something where there's multiple options, mm-hmm. everyone puts in one viable option, and then we do some type of lottery system yeah. where we flip a coin or we do like a random number generator. And so, yeah. I think that's a fun, a fun and sensible way to do things as well. Yes, and absolutely. more people should make decisions that way. Yeah, yeah, it's good. But that's been working really well for me, and I'm very proud of myself. And if you struggle to watch a high a high volume of movies, this is a really good way to like break the dry spell, I guess. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of I don't know how many movies I've watched in the past few weeks. Which is why it's so nice having Letterbox because yeah. I would absolutely forget what I've been doing lately, mm-hmm. if not for Letterbox. So I absolutely love it. I I know you've been logging your films as well. I have been. I'm so happy I started my account. Remy yeah. Friend. Remy Friend, I should say. Yeah. Letterbox. You can yeah. find that at our link tree in the show notes. You can find mine too, but I'm I'm less uh consistent with that. And I feel like I have less uh interesting things to say. I'll be like, solid film. Good for a Halloween watch. It's still fun seeing what you're up to. Yeah. I've also been trying to, like, figure out my own rubric for my star system. Because I'm like, Mm. well, what makes something five stars, right? And You know, I've been trying to figure out your rubric, too. (laughs) I think it's – I base it on whether or not it's going to be, like, lasting, for me like lasting in what way if it's something that's going to be like on my mind a lot because Mm -hmm. those are the things that I find really valuable in a film and that's one of the reasons I updated the talk to me like review that I had Mm. made initially because Mm -hmm. I had ranked it really low because initially I hadn't found it very enjoyable to watch but Mm -hmm. upon further consideration and without even watching it again, I increased it to like four and a half stars, I think, because it had stuck with me in a really lasting way. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the mark of really great cinema is just a really lasting effect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That definitely factors into my algorithm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that is a big chunk of my algorithm is whether something surprised me or not. If something surprises me, good or bad, well, I mean, it doesn't have to be a good valence surprise, I mean, Mm -hmm. but if something surprises me, it's at least jumping up a star or a half star from wherever it was at. That always means a lot to me. So I'm not 
I don't think I could tell you my algorithm outright because a lot of it's just intuitive, but yeah, those are two things that definitely factor in. Yeah. A lot of it for me is like gut feeling and mm-hmm. that's why a lot of my rankings are really high. And so I had to figure out a way to like spread it out within things that I do like because initially mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, I really enjoyed watching that movie. So obviously it's four or five stars. And so everything was really, really skewed up. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very hard for me to like go into something and not end up liking it, you know? Mm-hmm. But movies that I think about a lot need to be higher up in the order. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that it's a good policy for me to go back and update my reviews shortly after watching, like maybe a couple days later. Because, for example, after watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I would have like ranked it quite highly. But now I would rank it even higher because I think about it probably three to four times a week. Like at really? least. Yeah, I think about that wow. movie all the time. And that's not what I would have expected coming out of that viewing experience. So yeah. it matters more to me now. I will say I have been thinking a lot lately. Okay, well, this is <laughs> okay. this is related to my latest dream fantasy life where uh-huh. I think every day that I'm at work <laughs> about how I wish I was a cowboy. <laughs> and I normally, I like go back and forth between texting you and texting Will, like, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> And I was texting you about this the other day, and I was like, yeah, I want to start a new Spawn Ranch (laughs) where I'm a cowboy on the ranch, but also we film movies there. Yeah. (laughs) So I've been thinking about Spawn Ranch a lot, but I'm curious about what you think about from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, Pretty much anything involving Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth. (laughs) (laughs) Cliff Booth. It's all about Cliff. I think about Cliff Booth all the time. Yeah, I don't know. It just left such a lasting impression. I... Mm -hmm. I can't really even put my finger on it. Um, it, I think about the colors a lot. I mm-hmm. really like the colors they used in that film. I don't know. I just think about it a lot. It just like is a nice place for my mind to go to. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wish I had a better answer, but it's just, I think about it a lot. Great film. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah, I guess I'm going first this week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Then, yeah, I'll jump in. As I was explaining to you, on Saturday this weekend, it was amazing outside. And so I took the opportunity to book tickets to David Fincher's new film, The Killer, which is showing for one week only at the Paris Theater, which is way down. It's at like the bottom of Central Park. It's like one block away from the bottom of Central Park. Mm -hmm. And so I walked, Will and I walked there through the park and like, you know, allotted like an hour's walk time. Yeah, that's (laughs) non-trivial. Yeah. But it was so nice. And it had been so long since we were outside in the sun, Mm -hmm. no less. That we were like, this is the perfect opportunity to be outside for at least an hour each way. Yeah. And I was really excited to show him that theater. I went there. Actually, I went there to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, strangely funny. enough. Yeah. That's so weird. Um, as part of their Big and Loud series that I've oh, been telling yes. you about. Yeah. But they're also... It's like this, I think it's a historical theater that was going to close, but then Netflix bought it and renovated it and now they own it Mm -hmm. and that's the reason why 
the killer is showing there for one week only because it's in limited release and then will come to Netflix and live on Netflix starting on November 10th. Oh, that's actually really exciting. Yeah. So often when things are produced and or distributed by Netflix, they'll have a short run at the Paris Theater and then live on Netflix in perpetuity. That's really yeah. cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been scanning the horizon for an opportunity to see the killer in theaters, though, because mm-hmm. like most people on the planet, I'm always interested when David Fincher has a new film. <laughs> and I, I thought the promotional materials for the killer looked really promising. And so I wanted to pounce on the opportunity to see it in theater if possible because mm-hmm. I love having that full theater experience whenever I'm able. And so I was really happy to do that. I took Will and he thought that the theater was really cool too. And we established our preference to be in the balcony section. Oh, yeah. And that way, like, you don't have to kind of crane your neck up to yeah. look at the screen. It's like a dead on view. And so I love any opportunity to be in a balcony. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite place to be in film scene for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was awesome. And we had an awesome time at The Killer, which was written for the screen by Andrew Kevin Walker. And he adapted the screenplay from a graphic novel series mm-hmm. by Alexi Nolan and Luca Jacquemin. Sorry to those people if I said your name wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's based on a graphic novel series and obviously directed by David Fincher, like I said, starring Michael Fassbender as an no-name-given assassin. Mm. And it is basically... A story following Michael Fassbender's character, who is a control freak professional assassin who is on a global mission for revenge, essentially. And it's broken into five acts that all take place in different locations around the world. And you begin the film in Paris watching Michael Fassbender on a routine assignment essentially where he's staked out a uh, a Paris hotel or a Paris apartment building and he's waiting for his target to be available to snipe and while he's spending days setting up his nest and waiting for the target to appear he's using voiceover to talk you through his routine as an assassin and his philosophy on killing for a living and his philosophy on humans in general (laughs) and giving you all kinds of procedural details into every decision that he makes and why he has such tight control over his routine and his life Mm -hmm. and the way he does things. So it's a very procedural movie, which I find extremely satisfying Mm -hmm. and really enjoyed that aspect throughout. He, You never stop learning about Michael Fassbender's character and how prepared he is and how much planning he puts into everything. Mm-hmm. You're constantly uncovering new details that he's thought about and planned ahead. And 
it all works seamlessly with the philosophy that he's outlining to you as well, which of course touches on a lot of David Fincher common themes like nihilism and consumerism and all of the things you might expect, but in a, in a more fun and action packed package this time. And I would say I decided I wanted to cover the killer this week as my piece of media because it might be, it's definitely like tied for first in the most fun I've had at the movies this year. Mm-hmm. It was basically a blast and I went in with kind of medium expectations. I didn't want really to get my hopes up too high, but I had an absolutely great time. And Will had a great time too. And the whole time we were just like um, laughing at different things. There's Uh good jokes and other people in the theater were laughing a lot and enjoying some of the visual gags and the jokes and dialogue. And there was a really, (laughs) there was a sick burn on New Orleans, which Will and I absolutely (laughs) lost it at. Because that's Will's hometown. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as they, as soon as he said it, we lost our minds. It was great. And so, yeah, it had a really great balance of David Fincher's normal jam, but mm-hmm. with some fun jokes in there too, to lighten things up. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it also had a really great pace, even in portions of the film where you're trying, where I believe the film is trying to convey to you the tedium of Michael Fassbender's job, like waiting and waiting and waiting for this guy to show up. Mm-hmm. It's never boring, and you're constantly being fed new information. And I thought the film just flew by, and I think a lot of that is due to the editing of Kirk Baxter. I thought it was paced wonderfully, and... It also absolutely looked incredible. Mm-hmm. The locations they scouted for this were awesome. And my absolute favorite location was Michael Fassbender's house slash beachside mansion in the jungle. And every single scene they showed in that house was I wish I could have watched it at half speed, just so I could take in all the details of how cool his home was. Uh, whoever chose that location did a great job. I absolutely loved it. And I want to have like an architectural digest tour of that home. <laughs> it was so cool. Um, so I loved that. And another location I loved was a restaurant that Michael Fassbender goes to towards the end of the film where he talks with Tilda Swinton. Mm -hmm. And I also would just absolutely die to have a meal in that restaurant. (laughs) So there's great decision-making in the film in terms of how amazing each setting is in setting the mood for that act or that scene. Mm -hmm. And I loved all the details and choices that went into those settings because they absolutely, for sure added to each and every one of the scenes that took place in those locations. Um, which is just another way of saying like David Fincher's just an immaculate vibes guy. <laughs> he knows how to set a vibe. Um, let's see. So yeah, everything looked incredible and pristine. Oh, and another thing 
that I absolutely loved and really, really, really appreciated was the sound mixing and sound editing, Mm -hmm. which was particularly good in the theater because they've obviously put a lot of thought into their sound system, and that was part of the renovation they were doing over the summer at the Paris Theater, Mm -hmm. was revamping all of the sound there, and it really came through in that viewing experience, especially in a lot of the more action-oriented sequences. The sound editing was incredible, especially in the fight scenes. And I think that's why I really, really enjoyed the sequence where a sequence where he goes to Florida and has like a huge fight scene. And it was incredible. It was a really visceral experience. Mm -hmm. And the sound was a huge part of that. And I absolutely loved how they choreographed that fight scene. And how much the fight interacted with the setting. Again, the mm. the choices they made in set dressing, the home where the fight takes place, mm-hmm. and how every step of the fight incorporates props in that home That's was really cool. amazing. And after the film was over, Will and I were sitting and watching the credits and talking about how much we loved the fight scene in Florida. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine how long it took to reset that scene uh, when they were shooting because there was so much broken glass. The whole place was destroyed. There must have been so much stuff to reset. I was like, I cannot even imagine how long that took to shoot because there's so much... So much to do there, but it makes a huge difference and it makes it feel so much more visceral Mm -hmm. and like it makes me feel so tense because when the people fighting in the movie are like actually interacting with the world around them, it makes such a big difference to me uh, compared to like people just fighting in like CG space. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels a lot more real. It's so tactile. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to know more about, like, fight choreography. I'd love to, Mm -hmm. like, hear an interview with someone who does that for a living because Mm -hmm. that just sounds like a really cool job. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of different approaches and techniques and philosophies Uh that those that fight coordinators have in terms of their goals for setting up a fight. Um, But, yeah, I I don't know who coordinated this one, but I thought it was awesome. And... I would be interested to see what other films they've worked on. Yeah. And I would say overall that I think this film, while I'm really excited I got to see it in the theater for the first time, because I think that's a really fun experience, I also definitely plan to watch it again once it comes to Netflix, because I think it has a really great inherent rewatchability. And I think part of it is the structure of the film and how each chapter is centered on a specific target. And so each act, you know, there's like a defined thing that Michael Fassbender is trying to do in that act. And so the momentum of trying to check each thing off the list really carries you Mm -hmm. from one act to the other. And I was thinking about how it reminded me a lot of Kill Bill Volume 1, yeah, because you're following an assassin who's on a, you know, revenge rampage, and she's hunting down people in different locations and checking them off her list. And it is very much 
kind of the same thing, but it's like, of course, once you watch the first one, you were like, well, now I, I gotta watch Lucy Liu. I can't just stop now. And yeah. so you, you want to continue on to the next job every time. And it reminded me very much of that. And so I would say Kill Bill Volume 1 would be a great double feature with the killer because you're just watching an assassin um, just go on a rampage, essentially. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of relief in the killer in the same way that there's a lot of like comedic relief in Kill Bill as well. Yeah. Which... You know, you know how I feel about comedic relief. You love it. I love it. So yeah, I'm really excited to see it again. It's such an easy watch and just a propulsive watch. And I hope a lot of people check it out. I'm really interested to see the overall reaction to it as part of, you know, David Fincher's filmography at large. Mm-hmm. Um The Blank Check podcast, which is a podcast I really enjoy listening to, they are the two hosts, Griffin and David. They cover the entire filmographies of one director at a time and talk about, you know, the interplay between each of the films in that director's filmography and how that maps on to how much, you know, power and influence and autonomy they had as a as a filmmaker through each stage in their career at each film. And they're covering David Fincher right now because of his new film coming out. And so I can't wait to see their reaction to it and their discussion of it in his filmography as a whole. So I'm yeah. very much looking forward to that. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Gonna add it to my list. To your list of 10 films? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Please do. I have two empty slots now because I haven't decided what's going to go in them. So, okay. yeah. Um, but yeah, those are most of my highlights. I don't want to give anything else away, mm. but I think, you know, that's a little bit more than what you see in the trailer, but you get the sense of, of what it's about just mm. from the trailer. Yeah. Awesome. So once again, you're covering something brand new, hot off the press. And I am covering something that's a little bit older. So I recently revisited the film The Invitation, which came out in 2015. And it is not to be confused with The Invitation, which came out in 2022, I believe. So I'm talking about the film that was directed by Karen Kusama. It was written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. And it has a whopping 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. So we know that this is a highly regarded film. So I definitely wanted to revisit it. I watched it, I think in 2019 for the first time and remembered really, really liking it. It is definitely when I was starting to get more into independent horror films and Mm -hmm. thrillers which this film kind of rides the line between a thriller and a horror film, I think. But I, it really made a lasting impression on me. And it's also kind of following a theme in my spooky season content this month because I recently covered Black Sheep, which is kind of cult horror in the same yeah. way that um, this film is. So 
The general plot of this film is that there is a group of old friends that are reuniting. Um, after a period of not really talking to one another, they all get an invitation to come to their friend's house and have a dinner party. Mm-hmm. And we know that the friend group kind of split apart after two of its members lost a child and were going through extreme grief and just kind of fell away from the friend group, got a divorce, and have been mm-hmm. living separate lives since then. And we know that our main character that we're following, Will, um, who's played by Logan Marshall Green, he is still really, really grieving his son. This is pretty raw and uh, just a really hard time for him. He is bringing his girlfriend, Kira, with him to this dinner party and it is being hosted by his ex-wife and her new partner at their home that they shared together before their child died. So it's a lot of like memories coming into this home that he used to live in with his wife and his son. So there's a lot of complex emotions going on and pretty much right away he starts noticing that his ex-wife is acting a bit strangely She's just kind of got this really easy, kind of dreamy attitude to her. And um, she's just not seeming to still be in this grieving process. And they keep talking about how pain is a choice and you can choose not to feel grief and you can choose not to feel pain. And he's just like, but our son died. Like, I'm still feeling this and I'm still very emotional about this. And the every time I watch it, I'm always surprised because I see the new partner that the ex-wife is with. And it's played by um, Mikhail Hoosman, who I know from his role in Haunting of Hill House. Um, He plays Mm -hmm. the eldest son in in that show. And the first thing I remember him from was Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, because he takes over as the... He's like the second Dario Naharis, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like the first one better, but whatever. Whoa, okay. Hot takes. Um, (laughs) But I think that he's a really great actor, and I really like him in The Invitation as well. He just kind of gives this, like, creepy culty vibe, Um, and I'm a big fan of him. But basically, without giving too much away about the way this dinner party unfolds, the evening devolves. There's a lot of suspicion from Will's end and a lot of gaslighting behavior that ends up happening throughout the film, um, which really adds to like the tension. And we learn more about this like community of people who have really radical beliefs about their own grief and how people should be dealing with their grief. And I just think it is a fantastic film. I really enjoyed revisiting it and kind of knowing where the film is going on a second watch is really enjoyable. Some things that I really like about this film in particular is, which I've already slightly alluded to, is that the performances in the film are really amazing. 
One thing that I was thinking about on this watch in particular is that the friend group chemistry felt really real to me. Um, Mm -hmm. There was like just a lot of like very friendly moments where people would like lean their head on someone's shoulder just like casually during conversation. And I think that that's the way that like my college friend group interacted and things like that. People who have a really close friendship with one another. I just thought they did a really nice job acting like they knew each other very well. Mm-hmm. And another standout performance that I liked in particular was John Carroll Lynch's performance. As, I was hoping um, you would bring him up. Through it, uh, who is like a friend of the hosts. He's also part of this like invitation group. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is unsettling. He is so mm-hmm. strange and he has this monologue halfway through the film that just, he's describing how his wife died and like his intense grief and it is delivered in just a very calm, unsettling way. And he... Mm-hmm. Knocks it out of the park. I love him. Um, not like love yeah, the character, John. but he just did such a good job. Yeah. John Carroll Lynch is the king of unsettling. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah. So look out for him when you watch this because it's, oh, unsettling. Um, another thing that I like about this film is that while there isn't a ton of like comedic relief to the film, there are moments of relief where the tension will build and build and build and then break and it'll like settle down to kind of a baseline and then build and build and build. And it is very good pacing of like information reveal. And I really like the pacing and the slow burn of the film. And I think it plays with our, the like the taboo of grief and as an audience member, it makes you do your own gut checks of like, am I feeling this way because I think that this is how people should grieve? And are the people in this film actually right? Like way before the end. And I think that it makes you kind of question your own belief systems in a really interesting way. And you're very aligned with Will's character, who's mm-hmm. like trying to figure out what what's going on. And whether or not you should be judging this group of people. And I just really enjoy that aspect of it. I enjoy that as an audience member, you don't know any more than your main character. And it is so unclear what is going on. You don't know if your main character should be trusting their gut and should be listening to their own instincts. So I found that really entertaining. And I think that... I'm not going to give anything away, but there's a scene where they're all doing a toast and that scene is so, so good. It like is that final moment of questioning and trusting Mm -hmm. your gut and they just did such a good job designing that scene. Yeah. And I think throughout Karen Kusama does such a good job of understanding where the audience is at Mm -hmm. as, um, as a stand-in for Will. Yes. And kind of having, um, 
like a mental representation of a scale of doubt versus like not doubt for what is going on at this night, because there's constantly different things being added to the scale of whether something bad is going down. Uh And she so expertly manipulates the audience Uh through Will's experience to kind of push and pull you back and forth and be like, holy shit, Will, you got to get out of there. And then like five minutes later being like, no, actually you're going to look crazy if you like do something weird. Yes. And she toys with the audience so expertly that when I like watched this film and got to the end, I was like, I'm so impressed by how manipulated I was like down to the second. Yes. That, that the execution is phenomenal. And yeah. I was like, this is why I'm glad I'm a person who, for the most part, is like an along for the ride type of viewer because yes. I want that artful manipulation. I want to feel what the director is hoping for me to feel yeah. moment to moment because in instances like this, it's it feels so rewarding. Yeah. And when you're completely aligned with your point of view character like that, it is so immersive and I was just extremely impressed by that as like from the skill of a filmmaker to have me go on that ride exactly how they wanted it. Yeah. Scene by scene, moment by moment. Yeah. And this was my second watch of this film and I was still like not sure because I haven't seen it in many years and I was on that emotional ride with Will the whole way. Even though I knew how it, like, ends, I couldn't remember how we got there. And so the rewatchability is amazing. I really enjoyed rewatching it. And I didn't feel like I had too much information at any given point. Uh, And with that, this might be kind of too much of a spoiler, but I think it's kind of clear where the movie's heading. And... The knowledge that you're right at the very end is so satisfying, but so devastating. Mm -hmm. And I love that they give you an answer and that it's not left up in the air. Because some movies will do that. They'll be like, oh, well, it's open to your interpretation. But I loved getting that answer and getting a resolution to the, the whole plot. And I think that it just felt really satisfying. And yeah, the final like action scenes are amazing. It's just, you're on the edge of your seat for most of this film. And I highly recommend it. It's amazing. I know. I was so excited when you told me this was your pick. I was like, I love that movie. It's such a great film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's all I've got on it. Do you have any double features you might line up with it? Um, you know, I think. A good double feature with this film would be Midsommar, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, it's dealing with a lot of grief in both of the films. And I think that Midsommar does a really good job being a slow burn where you're getting information about a group of people really, really slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all culminates in a really interesting... <laughs> final sequence of events, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I guess that would be my double feature if I had to choose one off the top of my head. Do you have one in mind? I was thinking coherence because it's um, another independent film where you're seeing a friend group 
having a dinner party and there's clearly a lot of history and tension within the group. Mm-hmm. And as the evening of the dinner party unfolds, you're constantly questioning, like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and so I think even though the answer to what the hell is going on is very different for mm-hmm. each of these films, the vibe is similarly tense. And yeah. the not ignoring the parasocial stakes mm-hmm. and how that feeds into the tension, like, those are both very, like, top note for both of those films is like um this person's mad at this person because of their shared history and that's definitely playing into the tension of how everyone is like reacting in this scenario and so yeah i would say coherence is in the same vein and would make a really good double feature yeah i haven't seen that that sounds good but yeah that's all i've got and i'm ready for overlaps overlaps ready let's make our friend diagram let's do it what did these two things have in common? Um, you go first. I'm trying to like put together my thoughts on mm-hmm. one thing that I wanted to say, but I, I don't have the words for it quite yet. I'd say one thing they have in common is awesome homes. So I told you how much I loved Michael Fassbender's home. Yeah. In The Killer. It's absolutely amazing. And mm-hmm. I think the home where the dinner party takes place and the invitation is also really cool. Yeah. It's like a classic Hollywood Hills um, yeah. place, I guess, or in my imagination. That's what I imagine <laughs> really yeah. nice homes in the Hollywood Hills looks like. I think that's where it is. I think mm-hmm. it's definitely in LA at the very least. Yeah. And yeah, they're not aesthetically the same, mm-hmm. but they both sort of give you the same feeling. It's like, wow, that's an amazing home. I would love to yeah. go there and check it out. <laughs> yeah. Love to have that be my Airbnb or something. Yeah. For sure. Oh, you know, I'd love to live there if, you, <laughs> if you're offering. Yeah. One of the, one of the commonalities between these two films that I was thinking about while you were talking is that there is, and a motive behind what the individuals in the movie are doing. And there is definitely an emotional component to that motive where in the killer, it's motivated by revenge. And in the invitation, there is a motive of grief related driving forces, I suppose, for what the hosts of the party are doing. But I don't want to give, give it all away. <laughs> Yeah. Does that make any sense? I think it's similar to a thought I was having, which Mm -hmm. I think is easier to convey having seen both of them. Yeah. Um, And it's that the people in these films are demonstrating extreme rationalization as a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. for extreme emotions. So in the invitation, you're talking about how Will's ex-wife says that she can, you know, rationalize her pain away by saying it's a choice and kind of like making it an abstract thing that she can push away. Mm-hmm. And in The Killer, Michael Fassbender's character kind of talks you through his philosophy on why he doesn't have any, you know, moral concerns about killing people for a living because it's just a drop in the bucket of everyone dying in any second Mm -hmm. on the planet and he has all of these rationalizations for his lack of empathy and all of those things and so 
I think using rationalization as a way to attempt to control your own emotional experience is something that people in both of these films are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing that I had written down is the pacing is very like deliberate in both of the films. Um, Mm -hmm. You kind of described chapters or acts in the killer of like a new target and setting up for that target and then getting that target. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that while it's not organized into specific like chunks like that, there are multiple like rises and falls in tension in the invitation that are extremely deliberate and Mm -hmm. add to that like weight of doubt and certainty. Um, And so that's, one of the things that I think makes this film so effective as well, but the pacing is definitely an overlap. Mm -hmm. And I think that also feeds into how we both described each of our choices as rewatchable Mm -hmm. because the pacing is so good and you feel yourself being so expertly manipulated Mm -hmm. by a director that has very tight control over the film and over the audience's emotions that you feel really willing to go on this ride again and again because you are happy to be uh, manipulated in that way because it's such a fun time and or tense time. (laughs) Yeah. I guess another overlap I would have is that there are good fight scenes in both of the films. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember if there was use of environment in the invitation, really, I vaguely remember like lots of things being broken, Mm. (laughs) but I don't remember exactly how that played into the fighting, Mm -hmm. but the fight scenes are really, really scary because no one is expecting a fight. (laughs) Uh, Like a lot of the people in this film are not expecting a fight. Why would you? There's just just at a dinner party. Yeah. But the struggles are really good. So definitely a big fan of that. The Invitation is streaming on AMC+. Plus. It might be other places as well, though. I think it's like on some of the free movie services as well. Yeah, it says you can stream it for free on Pluto, Tubi, and Peacock um, in addition to AMC+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And The Killer will be coming to Netflix on November 10th. Yeah, check it out. It's going to be on my list. Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com, and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice, and we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.